Let's turn now, the Lord would help us, friends, to the portion we read in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. <clears throat> when this man was converted on the Damascus Road, God sent a message to him, which was possibly the most discouraging message that a Christian ever received from heaven. You will find it in Acts chapter 9. God sent a man called Ananias to see this new convert. And he said to him, show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Surely the last thing a new believer would want to hear is that they're going to suffer because of their faith in their Savior. God, we are constantly reminded, is not into what somebody once called cotton wool Christianity. God is sometimes brutally honest with the truth. He knows that the world hates him. And he also knows that the world hates those who love Christ. And the more faithful people serve Christ, the more exposed you become to the hatred of Satan. This man, Paul, was to be the most gifted, the most blessed, and the most skillful of all New Testament apostles. So his entire Christian life, from the Damascus Road until his life ended in Rome years later, was one long drama. Do you remember his first meeting with Christ? He describes it as seeing a light brighter than the noonday sun. And not with the greatest imagination can you think of a light that is brighter than the sun at noon. For three days and for three nights, he suffered the result of that experience. The light was so bright it blinded him. And there he sat in a house in the city of Damascus. Couldn't see a thing. Three days and three nights. When his sight was restored to him by God, who had taken it away, of course, in the first place, he set out to preach the gospel 
are not consumed day and night for the rest of his life. His every waking moment was spent in promoting Jesus Christ and in teaching the people of God in this world. And he paid the price. And that's why I brought your attention to those verses in chapter 11. And he details the extent of his sufferings, which is really, I've always wondered how infrequently he mentioned those sufferings. They're horrendous. We wonder how in the world did he survive all those sufferings? Now, as I've said a moment ago, all this demonstrates how realistic biblical teaching is. It spares you nothing. It tells you as it is. It tells the stories of God, of man, of life, of death, of heaven, and of hell as it is. Warts and all at times. Oh, my friends, we have to remember our world. It's a very sick place, a very violent place for men and for women, for boys and for girls. The opposite end of that is the paradise awaiting the people of God, the glories of heaven, a place of beauty, a place of peace and a place of love. So you've got these two extremes, the violence of a fallen world the glory of heaven, and slap bang between the two, you'll find the Christian church made up of people like the Apostle Paul, born again of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, it seems to me that in this particular incident we're going to look at this morning, he's tasting of both worlds. He's looking behind at the awful sufferings he had gone through, and he's telling us about this amazing experience, which he calls the third heaven. So let's look at some of the details here. Let's look, first of all, at this taste of heaven he mentions in verse 2. I was caught up, or he was caught up, to the third heaven. Now, perhaps it's a mark of this man's uh, amazing humility that he speaks of himself, you notice, in the third person, as if he were speaking about someone else. I knew a man in Christ above, above 14 years ago. But he's not speaking about somebody else. He's obviously speaking about himself. However, what's not so obvious in my reading of this is what this reference 14 years ago is pointing us to. If you're in the habit of reading commentators and things like this, you find discrepancies between the commentators. Some would suggest to you that this was um, this occurred, this this incident occurred those during those three days where he sat blind in the house in Damascus. Others would disagree with that and argue, no, this happened in Jerusalem. In the incident recorded in Acts chapter 22, when he says, while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. 
well, I'm not very sure. I, I think I'd rather go with the first suggestion that it was during that time in Damascus. So it doesn't really matter. Whatever the case, here's how, de- how he describes this incident. Caught up to the third heaven. Now, that reflects the Jewish view of the uh, idea of heaven. They believe in three heavens. They believe in the heavens above your head. And they believe in a second heaven above that, the, the, the galaxies seen and unseen. And then they believe in another heaven above that again, which is the abode of God and angels and saints. The third heaven, they call it. So he tells us here that he was caught up to this, uh, and he calls it paradise, you will notice. This, is, this word is only used a couple of times in the Bible to describe heaven. However, the Bible is clear. And this is where a bit of a mystery comes into the story. Nothing unclean can ever enter heaven. The book of Revelation states that very clearly. Nothing unclean can enter the holy environment of heaven. This man is the first to admit his own uncleanness. Do you remember what he said when he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 7? In me, he says, dwelleth no good thing. He realized and he knew that he was unclean, polluted by the sin and the guilt that followed him and that follows you and me. We're all unclean to one degree or another. So if he actually went into heaven, would he not have defiled that holy environment? And then you have this again, verse 2, whether in the body I cannot tell or out of the body I cannot tell. Now, sometimes we hear of people talking about having a, a subjective out-of-body experience. This wasn't a subjective notion for Paul, but it was, I would suggest to you, virtual reality for him. He speaks in verse 1 of visions and revelations of the Lord. But you notice this, the emphasis is on what he heard. He says nothing to us about what he saw, if indeed he saw anything. Verse 4, I heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So it's more than possible, my friends, that he didn't actually enter heaven itself, that holy, undefiled sanctuary, rather and this is how I understand this narrative. He was likely elevated to an extraordinary high level of holy communion with his God. And here's where, when, and how God trained this great apostle in the high and holy mysteries of divine revelation and salvation. So in other words, this was an overexposure, if I can put it that way, to what the Bible itself calls, in Psalm 25, the secret of the Lord. The secret of the Lord. 
Now, although he makes no reference to anything visual here, there are two things, uh, important things we should note. First of all, what he heard wasn't for repeating to anyone. And nor was it to be directly included in any of his writings. Verse 4 again. I heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. You see, this experience took Paul beyond the content of gospel and biblical doctrine. It took him beyond all of that. And what he eventually reveals to us in his writings, in his epistles, is the fruit of this third heaven experience. Not what he directly heard, but the fruit of that, what he understood from that, the implications of that third heaven experience. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, this took Paul in his mind, in his heart, it took him beyond the horizons of time and geography and history. And some of us who are older here, we remember old Christians on rare occasions talking about certain experiences they had in times of intense spiritual blessing in our communities, where they felt elevated above their natural and normal environment, almost as if they were lifted up into this elevated communion with God, where they become unaware of their natural surroundings, so focused were they upon God and upon the things of God. So this man is telling us that he was aware of things so glorious, so beautiful, so magnificent, that no language on earth could explain it. No language on earth could do it justice. He couldn't have written this even if he wanted to. And the second thing we should notice here is that this incident, this third heaven incident, prepared this man for the trials he was to endure in this life. Those trials I pointed out to you in chapter 11. And I think, in, in my own understanding of this, that what he experienced here enabled him to write particularly profound texts of Scripture. For example, you remember in Philippians 1, 21. Uh, most of you know this verse off by heart. We quote it so often in public prayer. To me, to live is Christ. Fine. To die is gain. Why did he say that? Because he became aware in this third heaven experience of the glorious destiny awaiting him. To die is going to be a gain for me. And then he wrote a further profound text. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the 
depths of the riches, both of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Oh, the depths, as if he were saying, the depths of things I saw in that third heaven experience, I cannot describe. In other words, my friends, what God shared with him in that experience enabled him to see beyond the pain of this life, enabled him to yearn after the luxury of a paradise with Christ. And what we have here is the fruit of all of this. We're enjoying the fruit of that experience in his epistles. But this is not just about Paul. It's about you. You who believe in Christ as your savior. And it can be about you who don't believe in Christ as your savior, if only you would. This is what's awaiting for you. This is what death is going to bring to you. Gain infinitely greater things that you could ever experience in this life. Yes, to live as Christ. But to die for the believers to be gained. And what gain? An eternity so glorious. But no language on earth can express it. But I want you to remember what made this possible. Look at verse 2 again. I knew a man in Christ. This is where you have to be, my friends. In Christ. This is the key to paradise. Being in Christ. You have to be in him by repentance and faith. And he has to be in you by his Holy Spirit and his grace. And only then can we hope to see, to hear, and to enjoy the glorious life of paradise for ourselves. So you make sure that this is your testimony. That you are in Christ. That that is your status and standing before Almighty God here this Sabbath morning. That you are in Christ through repentance and faith. Let me move on to look at this thorn in the flesh. Seven. Verse 7. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. When some people have a sore trial in life. Sometimes we hear them saying, well, this is my thorn in the flesh. And along similar lines, others claim, well, this is my cross to bear at the present time. Now, we understand the claim people make when they speak in those terms. And we even sympathize with them to a great degree. And no doubt that for them, that's precisely what it feels like. But be that as it may, the Bible is very clear on what both the cross and this thorn really mean. Look again at verse 7. 
lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation. And you will notice that that phrase, lest I should be, should be exalted above measure, is repeated at the end of the verse. So this thorn was a deliberate consequence of what he heard. And the phrase exalted above measure is obviously alluding to pride, even in the great Apostle Paul. So the third heaven experience was so utterly unique, so utterly singular, God in his infinite wisdom saw that even in a great man like Paul, pride could arise and would have arisen had he not been given this thorn in the flesh. And not only that, Paul doesn't argue. Paul would never have argued with this because he knew that pride lurked in every corner of his heart as it lurks in yours. And as it lurks in mine. You know, the three most common sins in the Christian life are idolatry, lust, and pride. And it's hard for me to say which one of these three is most responsible for the staggering and the stumbling and the falling and the backsliding of Christians. Idolatry, lust, and pride. We're all prone to pride, my friends. All of us, at many different levels, I hasten to add. Now, Paul recognized in this instance, this was God's intention. This was God's way of keeping this man humble in the light of the, the revelation given to him. Now, it's not easy for me to identify the precise nature of this thorn. Some people suggest to us, that, well, it was the messenger of Satan, that was a thorn. I, I don't think so, because it seems to me that there is a distinction made here between the thorn and the messenger. They're to me two, the two distinct entities. And I think that's suggested by Paul's prayer in verse 8. I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I don't think he would have been asking God in those terms if it were just Satan himself. Because Satan can only come at a Christian from the outside. He cannot be with us permanently. And it seems to me that Paul is here asking that it might depart from me. It is something that was with him. Now, it seems to me that this messenger used the thorn to buffet or to assault Paul, if you prefer. Now, we can conclude the following. We know this was something very personal to Paul. And we know it was in his flesh but not necessarily a physical thing. And we know it was a painful experience. And we know that Satan took full advantage of it. But you see, the messenger of Satan didn't 
buffered Paul every day. Not every moment of every day. We know that's the case. Uh, you can't see this in, in the English translation, but you can, we can see it from the original. The verb buffered is in the subjunctive. And that tells us that the action may or may not occur. So that tells us that Satan was choosing when and when not to buffet the apostle with this thorn. And that's why some people define the thorn as the actual sufferings that he endured. He mentions them in verse 10, infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses, and so on. In other words, the thorn was the never-ending attacks upon him by Satan, stirred up by this messenger of darkness. Now, there's no doubt that so these sort of trials were very, very painful and very, very difficult and very strength-sapping for Paul. And I would suggest to you that his days free from these attacks would have been rare and all too brief. Is that the case for you? It's not the case for every believer. How often can you say, as a believer here this morning, how often can you say, looking back on your Christian life, that you've enjoyed a full 24-hour period and not one arrow from Satan came at you? How often can you say that? Paul was at the far end of the scale. We may be at the other end of the scale, but it's the same scale, my friends, because we're facing the same enemy. And the moment you put your faith in Christ, the moment you profess Christ as your Savior, he will not leave you alone. We can argue all we like about whether every believer has a thought or not. But let's not argue about this. Every Christian is buffeted by Satan to a greater or lesser extent. So watch out for him. He will come at you and make sure that you recognize that's what it is. In my 30-year ministry, I'm afraid I've come across far too many Christians who will talk about certain difficulties in their lives as if they were just happenstance of providence. Whereas, oftentimes, they're actually the barbs of Satan. They're attacks of the evil one. They're not just being recognized the way they should be. So watch out for them, my friends. And especially watch out for them if you're a Christian here this morning, when you least expect it. Watch out for them when your guard is down. Watch out for him when you're coasting along, because that's when he will catch you. Remember the urgent message from Jesus. Watch and pray. Why? Lest you fall into temptation. Jesus knew that the enemy of our souls was never far away from us. 
Let me move on thirdly to look at Paul's prayer in verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. From these words we learn two things. First of all, Paul knew that he himself couldn't get rid of this thorn. He would have tried, he couldn't get rid of the thorn. And secondly, he knew that he could never overcome the messenger of Satan in his own strength. And let's take those lessons to ourselves. Meanwhile, and this is a strange thing. At least I find it strange. This thorn, which Paul found so very difficult, this thorn was actually good for him. It was actually good for him. Notwithstanding its pain, notice, look at verse 7 again. And again, you can't see this in the translation, but let me show you, you can see it in the original writing. There was given to me a thorn. In the original, that word given can be translated as gifted. There was gifted to me a thorn in the flesh. In fact, Paul made this point even more bluntly. For every Christian, listen to these words from Philippians 1, verse 29. It is given, gifted to you, not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Suffering. A gift from God. That's hard to grasp, my friends, isn't it? Hard to grasp. Only in the economy of divine grace could suffering be considered a gift. So Paul was never allowed to forget in Ananias' words, show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Yet Paul knew, in the midst of all of that, help was available to him. So he did what believers have to do when they find themselves in dire straits. And you remember this. He got on his knees. He prayed to his father in heaven. And you'll notice that he prayed three times in verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I once heard a minister saying that the number three he was representative. That Paul would have prayed this and prayed this and prayed this time and time again, day after day after day. I don't accept that at all. Why do I not accept it? Because I think Paul was here following the example of his Savior. Didn't he? fall on his knees in Gethsemane? How often did he pray? Three times. That's what Paul is doing here. He's following his Lord's example. I besought the Lord thrice. And it was a specific prayer for a specific reason. Remember, my friends, when you're praying, be specific in your prayers. And when you have specific reasons to pray, make that reason known. 
to your God, even though he already knows it. Of course he does. You make it known to him in your prayers. Now, I'd be very surprised if this prayer wasn't also accompanied by fasting, but that's by the way. And it's also evident that this man expected an answer to his prayer. Are you always expecting an answer to your prayers? Aren't we sometimes guilty, my friends, as Christians, of praying and not really believing we're going to get an answer? Perhaps not even looking for an answer. We just go on your knees, we pray to God, and we get off our knees. Truth be told, far too often we forget what we've been praying for. No, this man was expecting an answer. The answer did come. But it was the most unexpected answer, which was, in its own way, the best answer possible. No. Sometimes that's the best answer God has to give you. No. God would not remove the thorn from him. But no sooner did he make that known, he showed Paul how to cope with a thorn. This is what we need, my friends. Not that dilemmas will be taken out of our lives, not that pain and suffering, but show us how to cope with it all. Verse 9, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. When we observe the pain and the dilemma and the tragedy of others, don't you, if you are like me, don't you feel like concluding, I could never cope with that. I just could never cope with that. Yes, you could. If you are a Christian, yes, you could. However sore your trial might be, and here's how, and here's why, my grace is sufficient for you. And here's what grace can do, my friends. It enters every fiber of your being. That's the message from verse 9. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It enters every fiber of your being. So in God's grace, there's everything that's lacking in our weakness. Power, energy, strength. Not what we see in a Samson, but more the power of resolve, the energy of will, the strength of character. In other words, all that the heart and the mind of a believer requires to cope with the spiritual battles of this world, to cope with the personal dilemmas and traumas and loss we experience in this life. And when Paul understood what God meant, this battle-weary apostle concluded in verse 10, when I am weak, then am I strong. Oh, he was also weak in himself, but he was also strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so much so that even the persecution he was so burdened with became a totally different entity. Look at verse 9 again. I will rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Glory in his infirmities. What a transformation. What a change of attitude, change of heart. And then there's this in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. How amazingly sufficient, my friends, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How encouraging to every believer. We do have an answer, my friends, to these strength-sapping burdens and dilemmas and temptations of this life. We do have an answer. There it is. An ocean offered at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. I think Paul discovered all of this as a direct result of his threefold prayer. So that the prayer that makes you groan and weep, and I'm sure some of you who are professing Christians here today, you know what that is like. Offering God prayers through tears. But you know something, my friends? These prayers, hard as they may be, they are worth ten times what our ordinary, superficial, and shallow prayers are worth. So whatever your own thought is here this morning, Whatever is weighing you down, whatever is sapping your strength, whatever is causing you to weep inside, here's what God has to say to you. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In your weakness and in mine. And just as important as I close with this, this is also God's answer to the unconverted. It's always grace, my friends. Grace, grace, and more grace. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us, by grace you are saved. Through faith. Grace, grace, and more grace. And it shares a similar characteristic for those of you who haven't yet closed in with Christ. This is where you will get the power to believe in Christ. This is where you will get the energy to believe in Christ. This is where you will get the strength to believe in Christ. And that's when the unconverted can say, as many unconverted have said, once they experienced and tasted of this grace, when I am weak, then am I strong. Strong in the Lord Jesus Christ with that strength that we need for this life and to enjoy the life to come in the paradise of God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and blessed God, we thank thee for
the struggles and trials of this life that leave us so weak and frail and vulnerable. For it is then that we come to appreciate the preciousness of the grace available to us on the gospel table. Help us, O Lord, to pray and to pray diligently that this grace would be given to us commensurate with our need. Whether we are the Lord's here this morning or whether we are seeking the Lord here this morning, give of that grace so that it will transform our prospects and transform our lives and transform our thinking and to see something of the glory of the paradise God has prepared for us. For Jesus' sake, amen.